past few months at Trinity, we've been preaching this sermon series called Relational God, Relational People. For the first three weeks in January, we looked at how God reveals God's self as triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that relationship invites us into relationship as well. And then for the past few weeks, we've looked more specifically at what some of those relationships have looked like, the way that God makes commitment to God's people in time, space, and history. By making covenant relationship with Abraham, Adam, and Eve, Moses, and also with David. And so today we're concluding this sermon series by looking at Psalm 80. If you look at Psalm 80 in your pew Bibles, if you'd like to, at the top it has a title heading that says, Prayer for Israel's Restoration. And then just underneath it, it says, To the leader on lilies, a covenant of Asaph, a psalm. Essentially, this is known as a song of the covenants in the Psalms. And so it reflects on this covenant relationship and draws us deeper into that relationship with God. So I invite you now, if you'd like to, to open up your pew Bibles. Some of you have already done that. And follow along as we look at what God has to say to us in Psalm 80. Listen to God's word. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us the scorn of our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the fields feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. But let your hand be upon the one at your right hand, the one whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will never turn back from you. Give us life and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All this week I've been thinking about 
a story that might be relevant in the context of family worship and how I might connect Psalm 80 with a six-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 20-year-old or a 40-year-old or an 80-year-old. And as I was just thinking about that for a while, something popped up in my mind when I was six years old. I've shared this before. I was born in Milpitas, uh, but shortly after I was born, my family moved to Gilroy. And I grew up in Gilroy for a few years. And I loved Gilroy. Gilroy was a great place back in the 1980s. Um, behind my neighborhood was the hills and friends in the neighborhood. We didn't have video games. We didn't have cell phones. So we actually played with each other. <laughs> and, you know, there was this carefree spirit about the neighborhood. And I had such a great time. My school was just kind of down the road. It was close by. I could walk to it. Growing up in Gilroy was awesome. And my father had a pretty good job in San Jose. And he had an offer to have an even better job in Boulder, Colorado. So halfway through first grade, we ended up moving to Colorado. But two weeks before we left for Colorado, my brother and I really liked to pretend that we were Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Do you even know? Does, it, does that make sense? Is that still something people know about? Okay. There were turtles that mutated into much larger turtles, and they liked to be ninjas. So my brother and I loved to pretend that we were Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I fancied myself as Leonardo. He was Michelangelo. And this one evening when my dad got home from work, we were playing. We were fake fighting with each other. And my dad came home, and I thought, yeah, my dad's home. I'm going to fake fight with my dad now, play around with him. So my dad, he's standing in the kitchen, and he just lifts up his leg like this to block some of my sweet roundhouse kicks. And he does. And when I kicked him and connected with his leg, it snapped my leg in half. Just a clean break. It was horrible. You know how they tell you that some of your early childhood memories are because of trauma? <laughs> that was my trauma. We immediately went to the hospital, got the surgery, got the cast, got the whole thing. It was terrible. And then two weeks later, we moved to Colorado. And you think crutches are hard enough as it is, but then when you're six and a half and you see snow for the first time and it's 20 degrees outside and it's the middle of winter and you just transition to a new place and you're only a first grader, yeah, there was some hardship. There was some sense of trauma about moving to Colorado and crutches on ice and snow is not an easy thing. I think there's a sense in which in this scripture there's some trauma there's some lament for the people of Israel. And what they do with this lament is they bring it to God, trusting in covenant relationship with God, that God will meet them in this, in this prayer. You know, I, I didn't pray when I was six and a half, but if I did, it would have been right for me to bring this traumatic experience to God in prayer, to bring it to him. I've been thinking... Something I like to do in my sermons, as you notice, I like to bring in a variety of stories, literature, novels, sometimes multimedia stories, as a way to hold in tension with the biblical text, to provide different perspectives. Here's one way of telling a story. And how does this give light to or shed light on the biblical text? And so I wanted to do that again today by looking at the newest Star Wars movie and holding in tension something that's going on in that story. That movie is also about a young girl who has a traumatic experience when she's six or seven years old. Her name is Jin. And you'll see, I'm going to show a clip, a one-minute clip from the trailer. You'll see she loses her father at an early age. And that is the narrative, or that traumatic experience gives shape to the narrative of the story. 
and then I'm going to provide some more reflections. So we can watch this little one-minute clip now. It's a little intense and a little heavy, but it'll make sense. Rebellion is all that remains to push back the Empire. You think you might be able to help us? When was the last time you were in contact with your father? What is he? It appears he is critical to the development of a super weapon. If my father built this thing, we need to find him. All right. How many do I need? They are requesting a call sign. It's, um, Rogue. Rogue One. The power that we are dealing with here is immeasurable. If the Empire has this kind of power, what chance do we have? We have hope. Rebellions are built on hope. Star Wars movie. For those of you who haven't seen any of these movies at all, um, this is the first movie in the series of the last 40 years where they did a story that wasn't part of the narrative scope of the first seven movies of episodes one through seven. They just picked a story out in the main narrative and planted it in there to kind of look at what was going on. And this story takes place right before the first movie that came out 40 years ago, before A New Hope. And what you can hear in that is there's this sense of you know, what can we even do in the midst of this? Hope, we have hope. But this has been noted by a lot of people, and some people I've talked to you about, this is probably the darkest of the films. It's pretty scary. It, there's that sense of trauma that she has in losing her father, and there's this darkness to the story that's really, really actually pretty heavy. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine in the East Bay about the movie, and I was saying to him, you know, it's interesting because all the other stories there's this sense of this force that's at work, this good thing that though you can't see it, it's knowable and it's ever present. So that the stories are always hopeful when there's valleys in the stories and scary parts and good parts and scary parts and good parts. There's always this sense in which it's leading to a better place because the force is alive in the stories. But this one, there was this underdeveloped sense of the force. And I was talking to my friend about this, this pastor, and he said, yeah, it's true. It is true. I, um, there was only one character in the whole story in this new movie that came out that talked about the force. And basically, he used it as a mantra to say, I am one with the force. The force is with me. I'm one with the force. The force is with me. And by repeating it, it allowed him to complete a certain kind of function. It served as a sort of a function. Like there's a button I need to push that's 20 feet away. So if I repeat this mantra, it will allow me to go push that button. And I was talking to my friend about this. And my friend said, yeah, you know what's really interesting? 
I had a friend who was a Scientologist, and this is nothing about that, but in the context of that dialogue with his friend who was a Scientologist, he was trying to engage in interfaith dialogue. And he said, you know, I wonder what this would look like in your religion. And his friend said, no, 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 no. Scientology is not a religion. It's a technology. It's a technology. And my friend, he never forgot that, and that's why he shared it with me, because what you see in the movie is that the force is a technology. Essentially, it's not a faith anymore in something good. It allows you to go push a button that's 20 feet away. And I hold that up because what we see in Psalm 80 is something really different. The psalm of lament is not a psalm saying, God, restore us. Make your face shine upon us. Save us as a way to go push a button. Held in covenant relationship with God, there is hope, both for whatever is immediately impacting or affecting you, but also for something that's more ultimate. There's a different kind of hope that's going on in Psalm 80. It's that hope that we saw in the sermon series that Adam and Eve experienced with covenant relationship with God, with Abraham, also with Moses and David, that even in the midst of their valleys and their depths, there was this ever-present God that was with them and had made covenants with them and promises with them. So these prayers of lament, 40% of the Psalms lament the hardships faced in life, those traumatic experiences, even as a six-year-old, they can be brought to God in prayer. But it's not a prayer necessarily of technology, of being able to push a button or an immediate fix of my bone. That would have been amazing if I could have immediate fixed my bone and not had to walk on crutches. But something else is going on in that immediate sense of what God does when we lift up prayers of lament. Over Christmas break, Katie and I got a chance to go see some friends in Seattle, Washington to go to a wedding. And we got a chance to visit with two of our really good friends, Annika and Sam. Annika is finishing up her third year at Seattle Pacific University. She's getting her master's in marriage and family therapy. So whenever I see her, I always think, you got to tell me, you know, what, what are you studying right now? What's some good stuff? Give me the good books. Give me the good things that you're learning about. Because I always find what they're studying to be fascinating. So she recommended me this to get this book called Hold Me Tight. It's seven conversations for a lifetime of love. And basically it's focused on this style of doing therapy called emotionally focused couples therapy. And I'd never heard of it before, so I thought I'd read it. So I'd like to quote the introduction to you to read you a little bit of this because I think it gets at what God does in the immediate when we lift up our prayers of lament to God, like, like what's happening in Psalm 80. This is what she says in this book. She says, simply holding the hand of a loving partner can affect us profoundly, literally calming jittery neurons in the brain. Psychologist Jim Cohn of the University of Virginia told women patients having an MRI brain scan that when a little red light on the machine came on, they might receive a small electrical shock on their feet, or they might not. This information lit up the stress centers in patients' brains, but when partners held their hands, the patients registered less stress. When they were shocked, they experienced less pain. This effect was noticeably stronger in the happiest relationships, the ones where partners scored high on measures of satisfaction and that the researchers called the super couples. 
contact with a loving partner literally acts as a buffer against shock, stress, and pain. The people we love, asserts Cohen, are the hidden regulators of our bodily processes and our emotional lives. When love doesn't work, we hurt. Indeed, hurt feelings is a precisely accurate phrase, according to psychologist Naomi Eisenberger of the University of California. Her brain imaging studies show that rejection and exclusion trigger the same circuits in the same part of the brain, the anterior cingulate, as physical pain. In fact, this part of the brain turns on any time we are emotionally separated from those who are close to us. I think that's fascinating, this study that they did where they, they shocked someone, but when they were held by the hand of someone who loved them, they experienced less pain. They experienced less anxiety. They, that that loving relationship was actually the hidden regulator of bodily processes in our emotional lives. See, there's kind of a movement going on, and they talk about this later on in the book, that we live in a world where we're scared of attachment. We're scared of attachment to one another. We're taught that we should have differentiation and separation from our loved ones in our lives, and that that's a good thing, and that is a good thing. Um, But loving relationships and attachments are actually bonds that form really healthy relationships with one another. I think that's what's going on in Psalm 80 with this prayer of lament, where they keep saying this refrain, God, we've had traumatic experience. Restore us. Lord God of hosts, let your face shine upon us like those hands. Save us. Save us. So it has this immediate impact in which to decrease the sense of pain and anxiety for the purpose of being God's people in the world, for the purpose of being exactly what it is that God would call us to do, not necessarily to push a button, but that it frees us to be able to live in this world in the valleys and the highs, the depths and the heights, and all that life experiences. And finally, this sense of lament reminds us of what is to come in this new heaven and this new earth that the scriptures talk about. And that we see the first fruits of that new heaven and that new earth right now. See, when I was a little kid, moving to Colorado wasn't all that bad. Even though I had a broken leg. And I didn't smell garlic anymore. That was a good thing. Also, when I opened up my garage, I could literally go sledding right outside of my house. I didn't have to drive four hours to Tahoe. (laughs) It was right there. It was amazing. And eventually I made friends. That took time. But there was still some stuff, even as a six-year-old, that hasn't totally resolved itself in my life. Because we live in this world. And this world is not the new heaven and the new earth that God imagined. And where God is at work right now. Psalm 80 ends by talking about, God, send the one who is at your right hand to come among us and to save us and give us the strength of that one. And we recognize that one is Jesus Christ, that one who did do that, who did come down, rescued us, and is seated again at the right hand of God the Father. Psalms of lament, like Psalm 80, they help us individually, but also corporately as a community in worship to grow closer in covenant relationship with God. And it empowers us to be his people right now. 
Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine upon us. Save us. Will you pray with me this morning? God, that is our prayer, that you would restore us, that your face would shine upon us, that we would be held by you, God. So whatever traumatic experiences we may face in life, even from a six-year-old to a 60-year-old, you know them, and we bring them to you, Lord, so that we can be restored, both in the here and now and also in the yet to come. We lift up this day and this worship service to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.